Our Bible reading is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 to 14. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill, and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We all know the famous painting, The Scream, by Edvard Munch. Turns out we don't know what it meant. It's generally been assumed that it's the picture of someone screaming in horror. But this week the British British Museum said actually that's not the case at all. The man in the picture is holding his hands over his ears because what he hears is the scream of nature and he can't bear the sound. It's not a picture of a man screaming, it's a picture of a man listening. So we all know the picture, but do we know what it means? That's another question entirely. Dare I mention Brexit? 23rd of June 2016, Great Britain voted to leave the European Union. We all know what it meant, we thought. But actually no one has a clue what it means, or what it will mean if it happens. A friend of mine who voted leave put it this way in an email. I had no idea what I was voting for. I just thought it would be good to be back how it was before. Your own rulers. I'm not a great one for voting. 
And this has properly put me off ever doing it again. No point. What's that got to do with Luke 16? Well, Jesus tells two controversial parables and people can't agree on what he meant by them. The parable of the dishonest manager. Part of the problem is we don't know where it ends or what point Jesus, at what point Jesus stops referring to the parable. We've got this man who's accused of mismanaging his master's affairs. At this stage, we're not, not actually told that he's been dishonest, only that he's been accused and fired as a result. And finding himself up against it, he decides his best bet is to ingratiate himself with his master's debtors. So he amends their bills. One person's debt is cut in half, another has the bill reduced by just 20%. Why? One person gets a massive reduction, somebody else only gets a fifth off. We don't know. It might be random. It might be he figures he has a lot more to gain from the man who has a bigger slice cut off his debt. So what's happening here? Is the steward fiddling the books even more than he has been, ripping his master off to feather his own nest after he's been fired? Or is this the steward now suddenly turning over a new leaf as an honest man? Had he been inflating the amount these debtors owed to his master and taking these massive extra cuts for himself and suddenly actually, you know, I'm going to set the record straight with these people so they're going to be nice to me when I'm out of my ear. Or was it his master who'd been conning people of this amount of money and the steward is now reducing their debt to what it actually should have been? Or has the steward actually been falsely accused? Has he been innocent all along? He just says, stuff it. I'm going to make my master pay for this. I'm going to make sure I'm all right. And uh, he's going to suffer for making me uh, redundant when I've not done anything wrong. Wreaking havoc in revenge for the unfair treatment he's received. At what point is the steward dishonest? Is he dishonest through and through? Has he been dishonest and is now coming straight? Or has he always done the right thing and suddenly he's decided that being dishonest is the best way of preserving his own uh, good fortune? We don't know. And the mystery deepens when we read that the master commended the dishonest steward because he'd acted so shrewdly. What is going on there? Makes no sense at all. In any one of the above scenarios, you'd expect the master to be even more angry. But actually, he seems quite pleased. Well done. You wouldn't say good and faithful servant in the circumstances, would you? But well done, he says. Is this the grudging admiration of one con man for another, recognising his his match? Is he genuinely impressed with the steward's business sense in the face of adversity? Or does the parable actually end with the reduction in the bill for the bushels of wheat? If so, then it's not the master in the parable who commends the dishonest steward. The actual word here is the Lord. So it could be the the steward's Lord who commends him, or it could be the Lord Jesus. So he tells the story and says, actually, you know, you need to pay attention to what the steward did, because he did a good thing. Here's a man who, faced with the prospect of losing his income, did whatever it took to survive. And what about us, as we face the unpalatable truth, that whatever wealth we have here, we can't take it with us? So how do we use what we have here to prepare for where we're going when we die? Are we shrewd enough, like the dishonest manager in the parable, to use our material resources to prepare the way as best we can for the life to come? 
Do we use what we have to benefit other people so that when we come knocking at heaven's door, there will be people there who recognize us. Yeah, he helped me out. He was good to me. He, he, he saw me through a difficult time. You want to let him in. So there'll be people who vouch for us who say, yes, he's a good bloke. He should be able to get in because he was kind to me. Is that really what Jesus meant? We use our material resources here to help people so they'll be there to welcome us into the eternal dwelling places. Is that really how it will work when we get to the pearly gates? And isn't that whole idea of behaving that way a bit manipulative? Doing good to others so we'll benefit later on. If we're going to help people and be generous to them, surely we should be altruistic in our attitude rather than helping them down here just to get a bit of credit up there. Or maybe that's why Jesus used such a shrewd, dishonest manager to make his point. Perhaps we need to be a lot more shrewd in how we keep an eye on our eternal destiny when figuring out how we're going to use our worldly wealth. But then why use a parable about a man who's been commended for being dishonest to extol the virtues of being trustworthy? That doesn't seem to make sense either. And when Jesus talks about true riches, is he talking about some kind of reward in heaven that's given to those who use what they have been entrusted with to good purpose here? And how? what do we precisely supposed to do in the light of such mixed messages and given the choice between god and money loving one and hating the other or serving one and despising the other is the choice really that stark if i love god do i have to hate and despise money and what does that mean in practice or is it about what i love and set my heart on is is money one of those things that if i really set my heart on it it will end up corrupting and destroying me Whereas if I set my heart on God, then that will fulfil me and give me life in the end. It's, it's the trouble, the nature of sin, that we set our love on the wrong things and that causes damage to us and other people. Do we get our priorities wrong? Lots of questions. No really clear answers or clarity. And the parable of the rich man and Lazarus doesn't help much either. Again, it's shocking in many ways. Shocking that the rich man can ignore a poor man in such a desperate plight right outside his own door. It would be hard to believe. If we didn't know that that rich people didn't train themselves to ignore poor people. After all, if the rich man helps Lazarus today, there'll only be five more just like him outside his door tomorrow. So what's the point? That's the flawed logic that justifies a lack of compassion. Or is it simply an uncompromising perspective on the reality of the world as it actually is? And how come Lazarus winds up in paradise sitting on Abraham's lap and the rich man ends up being tormented in hell? Or actually, the text actually says Hades, which is the place of the dead. And there's some debate as to whether the two men are in heaven and hell, their final destinations, or whether paradise and Hades are just waiting rooms for heaven and hell. That's why they can see each other and talk to each other, why the rich man can communicate with Abraham and ask him to get Lazarus to dip his finger in cool water and send him down to cool the rich man's tongue because he's in such torment from the heat of the flames in Hades. And is this an actual picture of what heaven and hell or Hades and paradise will be like? Do we all get to sit on Abraham's lap? Are there flames? Or is this just vivid imagery, window dressing, with the main point of the parable lying somewhere else? If so, what is the point of the parable? Is it that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven? 
there seems to be little other differentiation between the two men and the outcome of their lives. This is a very black and white contrast between the rich man and the poor man. Abraham says the rich man is being tormented because he had it good here while he was alive. And Lazarus is being comforted because he had such a rough time while he was alive. Is it simply that our experience here is reversed there? If so, then for us as people who are immensely privileged in this life compared to the rest of the world, the parable makes for extremely uncomfortable reading. Is there a challenge for us? Does our eternal destiny depend on how we look after the poor people at our door? doesn't sound right. Not just because we instinctively want to defend our position and our wealth. The problem is it doesn't correspond with the good news as we've come to understand it, that Jesus died so that we could get to heaven. But maybe what we see in Luke 16 is, is the really radical Jesus who actually told people, you've got to sell what you have and give it to the poor if you want eternal life. Otherwise, you'll end up in the other place. And that kind of harsh, uncompromising, riches are wrong, Jesus has just been airbrushed out of our understanding over the centuries as we've tried to have a Jesus that we're more comfortable with. When we can live with Jesus and our money, have our cake and eat it here and later as well. We're not told why Lazarus ends up in paradise. It does just seem to be because he was poor and suffered here. Maybe the rich man ends up in Hades, not just because he had wealth, but because he ate sumptuously every day while Lazarus was starving at his gate. And maybe his crime was ignoring Lazarus. Some people have pointed out that even in Hades, he thinks Abraham ought to be able to send Lazarus down to to look after him and make him feel better. Lazarus is just there for his disposal. Still, I'm the rich man and he's he's the beggar at the gate. He ought to do something to make life better for me. And then there's... Always troubled me this. Abraham's response to the rich man's request that Lazarus should visit his brothers and warn them what lay in store for them unless they changed their ways. You might expect Abraham to agree to such a request. After all, you know, Abraham can't want the brothers to end up in hell as well, can he? But Abraham is totally unsympathetic. They've got Moses and the prophets. They should read what it says in the law. That should be enough for them. And when the rich man pleads for clemency for his brother, say, well, what if Lazarus were appear to appear to them? If someone were to come from the dead and tell them what it's like, then they would repent. Abraham will have none of it. If they pay no attention to Ab- Abraham and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, then someone rising from the dead isn't going to convince them either. And then we think, that reference to rising from the dead, is, is that about Jesus? Is that an indictment of people who who didn't believe Moses and the prophets and didn't believe Jesus when he rose from the dead either? And is, is, is the parable actually about how wealth can so corrode people's hearts that they pay no attention to scripture, they pay no attention to Jesus, uh, they really are in danger of, of losing the plot entirely? And is that not just for the wealthy people of Jesus' day, the Pharisees who love money, as Luke puts it, but does it actually have a, a strong warning to us with our secular society? The way in which wealth plays such a, a high uh, part in our priorities? The way in which our devotion to, to money has gone hand in hand with a lack of belief in God? 
Are we in danger because we've ignored God even though he's performed the miracle of bringing his son back to life from the grave? Is that the real point of the parable? And the whole portrait of paradise and Hades is just the, the window dressing, the setting of the story. Questions to ponder, to consider. Ideas that are disturbing. And that's how Jesus taught all the time. Engaging people's imaginations, their minds, their hearts, making them stop and think, what's, what's he on about? What's that mean? How am I supposed to understand that? What are the implications of that for me? No easy, quick, off-the-peg answers. Jesus wasn't into that at all. And some people interpret the parable one way and others a different way. And who's to say that my way is right and yours is wrong? Sometimes we have to learn to listen to and respect those with whom we disagree. So let me close by asking you some questions. Questions that I think the parables raise. Points to ponder. The manager facing the prospect of losing his job. He's not going to get a good reference. There's no source of security. He and his family will starve. He's in a desperate situation. He alters the accounts. In his shoes, what would you do? And if we're in a situation where the money that we use in this life is valid currency for this life only, how do we use what we have in this life recognising that actually eternity is of far more significance than the life we have here? Have we got our priorities right in terms of our attitude to and our use of worldly wealth. And are we trying to have our cake and eat it in terms of loving God and money? If, if push came to shove... And we had to choose, which would we opt for? Where do our love and loyalties really lie? And if you were the rich man, day by day, passing Lazarus at your gate disgusting sight just wishing he was somewhere else actually outside somebody else's gate not yours how would you respond to him and if the world to come is real And we are judged on the basis of how we use this world's resources. How do we best use what we have now to prepare for the life that we have then?
Lord, your word disturbs and challenges us. We are immensely conscious of our privileged position. We remember that with that privilege comes responsibility. We have sung tonight about loving you before everything else. We place who we are and what we have in your hands. Help us to live this life wisely. To use what we have wisely. Show us how we should live. What we should do. As people who love you. And to hope for eternal life. In your name. Amen. Let's close by singing All I Once Held Dear, Built My Life Upon.